Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. Ben kind of set the schedule for the Year of the Bible classes, and I really wanted to do Ecclesiastes because it's my favorite book in the Old Testament. Yeah, I was like, I need to do that one. Um... And when I saw that all three were on the same day, I was kind of like, okay, that's going to be a little tricky. But I actually discovered, like I said in the announcement, that there's kind of a history of putting those three books together, which I found really interesting, and I found it really helpful actually in understanding them as part of, kind of interconnected in a certain way. So Uh, This idea started with Origen, so one of the really early church fathers, and Gregory of Nyssa also uh, wrote a lot about this. And the idea was basically that there are kind of these three stages in life and that these books are really kind of attuned to these different stages. So Proverbs uh, was really a collection of wisdom sayings for young men who were preparing to have some sort of leadership, like let's say uh, serving in court or something like that. And so it was meant to guide them in the way of wisdom um, and give them some advice from older people who had some experience. Um, So they kind of saw Proverbs as being really great for that period in your life. And then uh, Ecclesiastes is really for kind of the middle of your life when um, you realize that Proverbs um, have limitations, um, that Human beings have limitations to carry out the Proverbs. Uh, as we know, the law is, uh, doesn't give us the power to obey the law. Um, and, and also, even if you do manage to kind of follow all the good advice and take the right road, that there's something uh, that hits you, typically in middle life, which is that you're going to die. Um, and the Proverbs don't really help you with that. Uh, with finding the meaning of life and uh, where to go from there. But Ecclesiastes has a lot of information for you if you're at that point in your life. Um, And then Song of Songs, you know, which is an erotic love poem. A lot of people read this and think, what is this doing in the Bible? It's a little embarrassing. They're talking about body parts, and it's very descriptive of this um, bride and bridegroom who are longing for each other in a very physical way. But uh, a lot of the Christian uh, contemplative tradition, the great mystics, really saw this uh, story as, yes, affirming uh, physical love and, and marriage and physical intimacy, but also saw it as a way of thinking about the longing that we have um, for, the, for Christ and the church to become one. Uh, So we'll take a look at that um, in a second. So let's uh, go a little deeper into um, these three books. So we'll start with Proverbs. So the introduction uh, in Proverbs, which is the first nine chapters of Proverbs, really tells us exactly what the purpose of Proverbs is. Um, It says it's for learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight 
for gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity, to teach shrewdness to the simple, knowledge and prudence to the young. Let the wise also hear and gain in learning, and the discerning acquire skill, to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. So an interesting thing is that the book of Proverbs is not meant to be a glossary of answers for every situation that we meet in life. It's not kind of like, oh, I'm faced with this very difficult situation. I'm going to pull out my Bible and see what Proverbs says. Well, Proverbs says um, it's supposed to be like this. That actually the Proverbs require understanding and wisdom and discernment to even know what they mean. And so this collection of sayings is really here not so much to provide all the answers, but for a person to reflect on. And that's how you acquire the skill of discernment. Um, They even compare them to a riddle, that there's something about the sayings of the wise that operate like a riddle. Um, And, sorry... I was going to show you this. There's a really great video. I'll just commend it to you if you search for it on YouTube. This comedian, um, John B. Christ, C-R-I-S-T. And he has this video called Lady Who Has a Bible Verse for Every Situation. And it's, he's kind of pretending to be this woman who's walking through a shopping mall. And just um, every time she sees a sale, has like a quote from Proverbs or some other part of the Bible to apply to it. But it actually doesn't really work that way. Um, A good example of why it doesn't work that way is um, the Proverbs, where my notes went, Um, there's one, they follow each other. Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be a fool yourself. Okay, that sounds like pretty good advice. But immediately after that, it says, answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. So you might ask yourself, what am I supposed to do when confronted with a fool? Um, It's telling me not to answer them according to their folly, and then immediately says, answer them according to their folly. And some people read that and said, we should just throw out the book of Proverbs. This should not be in the Bible because it obviously contains this error. Uh, But another way to look at it is that the answer is different depending on the situation that you're in, and that both of these things are possible. If you answer a fool according to their folly, you will be a fool yourself. But if you don't answer them, they'll be wise in their own eyes. So actually spending time thinking about those two situations is part of what wisdom is. It's part of the idea of discernment. Um, Doug talked a little bit about, um, in his talk on the Psalms, uh, about the, the structure of the Psalms, how a lot of them operate with parallelism where one side of the verset is basically mirrored in the second part. It's saying the same thing, but using different words. Um, And some of the Proverbs operate that way, too. But a lot of them operate as antithetical Proverbs. And so you have one side of a Proverb telling you one thing, and then the second half of the verset tells you the other side of the coin. And so it drives the point home by telling you the opposite. So I'll give you an example. A good wife is the crown of her husband. So that's the first part. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. 
So the first part of that verse, a good wife is the crown of her husband, um, that could stand alone. But understanding what the reverse of that is, the one who brings shame, is like rottenness in his bones. And notice how the, the poetry of it is really important, too. The good wife is like a crown, this external thing that sounds really great. Um, but the wife who brings shame, there's an internal um, sort of description of what that brings, the rottenness in his bones, the depth of what that causes to the husband. Uh, so the use of poetry here is really meant to drive the point home by using these really powerful images that complement each other. Uh, the other thing that is sort of lost in translation is that there's a lot of alliteration, there's a lot of rhyme that's happening. These were all here in order to help people memorize them. And so that when you were confronted with the situation, this would kind of pop into your head. <clears throat> Some of them operate more like riddles, like we heard in the introduction. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who reverts to his folly. So that could operate as a, what, what's like a dog that returns to his vomit? It's like a question. And you're given the image before you're given what's causing the image. So it's really meant to kind of conjure up this really powerful metaphor. Um, and then it gives you the answer of, of what we're talking about here. Like one who takes off his garment on a cold day, or like vinegar to a wound, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. So there's like a surprise at the end of that. That's how it operates like a riddle. Um, it's already got you thinking about what it feels like to take off your garment on a cold day, or what it's like to apply vinegar to a wound. And then it's hitting you with, that's what it's like if you sing a song to a heavy heart. Very powerful. Some of the Proverbs are not quite as powerful on first appearance. There's one, I think, that says, um, don't eat too much honeycomb because it will give you a stomach ache, essentially is what it's saying. And you're like, cool, thanks, Solomon. That's really helpful. <laughs> um, but if you, if you contemplate it a little bit farther, it's really kind of a warning about overindulgence, that it, too much of a good thing could result in this thing. So all of them kind of require a little bit of thought. One of my favorite proverbs, maybe my favorite proverb, is 1312. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. Uh, and I really love that um, because it kind of, this one operates a little differently than some of the other ones because it gives you the positive on the second half of the verse. Uh, and this one was used really powerfully in a play called Waiting for Godot, if you're familiar with that, uh, by Samuel Beckett which is about these two men who are waiting for this man named Godot who never comes. And they're, they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. And one of them says to the other, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled something, something. And he can't remember how it ends. And if you, if you know that proverb, it's actually a very powerful moment. They're standing next to a dead tree for the entire play. So a longing fulfilled is the tree of life, and they're, they're missing that part, and it actually emphasizes the longing. Uh, and we'll talk more about longing when we get to Song of Songs. Um, another important part of Proverbs is the allegory uh, that's presented of Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, and essentially the idea is sort of picturing yourself 
at the a fork where there's two roads. And there's one road that leads to the house of Lady Wisdom, and there's another road that leads to the house of Lady Folly. And we're given uh, some descriptions of what that's like. Uh, Lady Wisdom, you know, her income is better than silver, revenue better than gold, more precious than jewels. Um, That way is long life and riches and honor. Pleasantness and peace, it's also described as the tree of life. Happiness, security, you'll even sleep really well. Uh, in the house of Lady Wisdom. And then the way of folly is described as an adulterous woman uh, or a woman who is married to somebody else who's trying to tempt you. Um, It begins sweet, but it ends bitterly. There's ruin, there's loss and suffering. Um, It's really presented as a trap of a deceitful person who doesn't even know that they're lying. Um, And you can look at this very literally and say, oh, this is trying to tell young men... um, what type of woman he should be spending his time with. But really, this is an allegory. Um, It's more important um, as an allegory for just kind of choosing direction in life. Uh, I saw a meme that, of course, because Proverbs 31 is very similar, which is about talking about what kind of wife you should get, and it's a very reasonable, sensible woman who knows how to manage the household and all of these things. And it's not to say that that isn't a true thing or a useful thing, But more importantly, it's really kind of trying to speak to these young adolescent men with a metaphor that's very relevant to them, which is uh, the idea of women. Um, uh, This wasn't written for a woman to read. Um, I saw a meme that really got this wrong that said, striving to be a Proverbs 31 woman so I can get an Ephesians 5 man so that I can create a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Um, Good luck with that. (laughs) Good luck with that. Um, So, in conclusion on Proverbs, I just want to say that uh, there's a quote that I think is a little bit helpful. And again, I'm not saying that Proverbs isn't true or that the Proverbs aren't useful. Uh, But like Job, who is sitting with his three friends who are all quoting Proverbs, as if any of you were there for the book of Job forum that I did last month, um, there are limitations to these Proverbs. Um, There's a great quote by Francois de la Rochefoucauld. Uh, some, sorry, old people love to give good advice. It compensates them for their inability to set a bad example. Um, it really, it, I think of two scenes in particular. Um, one is from this movie called In the Name of the Father. This is a Jim Sheridan movie from the 90s about, um, it's a true story. And there's a scene where uh, Pete Postlethwaite, who plays the father, is sending off his ne'er-do-well son, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, to, from Belfast to London. And this is during the height of the Troubles. And just to look for work and try to like set him on the right road, like Proverbs is talking about. Um, and he says to him, he hands him some money, and he says, Now remember, honest money goes further. And the voiceover of Daniel Day-Lewis says, My father had a cliché for every occasion. Honest money goes further. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And he gets on the boat, and he goes off to London, and what happens is that he commits a a small robbery, and it lands him in a position to be unjustly accused, tried and convicted, and sent to prison for life for a terrorist bombing that he didn't do. Um, His father is implicated, goes to jail with him, and ultimately dies in prison. Um, He was released after 20 years, but it just kind of, it's this irony of, you know, wanting to give this young person this great advice, but it can't save them. 
There, so this information, it's not that he, what he said wasn't true. Honest money goes further. And maybe if he hadn't committed that robbery, none of this would have happened. But it didn't have the power to save him from himself. Um, another great example, if you've seen Hamlet, is Polonius speaking to his son Laertes as he's about to go off to become a young man and go to school. And he famously says, neither a borrower nor a lender be, uh, to thine own self be true. We still quote these things today. They're all very pithy, uh, useful statements. But what happens? Laertes goes off to school. Polonius is murdered by Hamlet. Uh, his Laertes' sister, Ophelia, ends up killing herself. Laertes comes back, and Laertes and Hamlet kill each other. In other words, everybody ends up dead anyway. So the Proverbs didn't have the power to save. Um, So speaking of death, uh, we move on to Ecclesiastes. (laughs) So Ecclesiastes, um, and all three of these books are attributed to Solomon. Um, Whether he actually wrote all of it or part of it or some of it, we're not sure. But they're attributed to him because he was this great king who was known for being wise. So anything that's attributed to him is meant to say, this is the height of wisdom. Um, And Ecclesiastes basically says, I was a son of the king of David, um, and I had all of this great wisdom. The writer is known as Koholet, which is usually translated as teacher, sometimes as preacher. But the root of that name actually means one who assembles. So, um, and which would have also referenced Solomon. He was known for assembling wisdom, for assembling people to build this great temple. So it's a clue that you're supposed to think of Solomon when you think of, um, of this writer. He is a man who uh, describes himself as having all of the power and the resources to truly explore the possibilities of the human condition. He has everything he needs to do a truly scientific experiment on how does wisdom really hold up, um, what is this life all about, and he seeks it. He looks at everything under the sun using reason and experience. And you'll notice that in this book, we don't have the promise of God or the covenant of God. That doesn't really enter into it. We're looking at the world just as it is on its own terms. What do we see? And he comes to the same conclusion for everything that he sees under the sun. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So that, um, that translation can be a little confusing because we think of vanity as um, self-admiration, like looking at yourself in the mirror like Carly Simon, you're so vain, you probably think the sun was about you. But the vain that he's talking about is um, to do something in vain. In other words, it, it's pointless. Um, you do something and it means nothing. It's meaningless. Um, it's futile, uh, pointless. And he comes to that conclusion even uh, when talking about taking the way of wisdom. So you could say, of course, when you think of coming to the end of your rope, sometimes we think of someone who's sort of come to in the house of Lady Folly and you don't know how you got there, and you're, you know, uh, looking for your shoes, thinking, oh my gosh, I'm hungover, how did I end up doing this? I really screwed it up. So that's one possibility. Or let's say you really did what you were supposed to do. You took the right road. You followed the Proverbs. Um, You got the great Proverbs 31 wife. You have all the riches. You have um, all of the things that were supposed to be the end result, the things you were promised in Proverbs, and you still feel empty. You still look around, 
And you're like, so what? What does all of this mean? And Koholit says, I experienced this. I did that. Vanity of vanities. It was pointless. It ultimately doesn't mean anything. Um, He talks about how the wise and the foolish all end up in the same place, which is the grave. And, yeah, maybe life was a little easier. Maybe I lived a little longer because of this wisdom. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. Everything I've accomplished will either be forgotten. Someone else will destroy it. You know, you could save all this money up and have all this great stuff and pass it on to your children, and then they squander it. You know, there's no guarantee that anything that you do is going to last past your death. Um, He even tries, he says, okay, let me try, you know, a little bit of hedonism. Um, I'm going to get lots of gardens and servants, possessions. He has lots of concubines. Um, And he still says the end result is the same. Vanity of vanities. Chasing after the wind. He does think it's better to be wise, um, even though wisdom brings more sorrow than ignorance. Um, He definitely says that people who are wise and have gained wisdom will definitely be a lot more sorrowful in life because they tend to see things the way they actually are. Ignorance is bliss. Um, But he still thinks that it's worthwhile to be wise, but that in the end, the result is the same. Uh, There's a famous part of for everything there is a season and a time and a matter under heaven. We know this from the bird's song, um, which is a very sort of hippie, like it sounds like a good deal. But what Koholit's really trying to say there is, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, and we have no say in it. That, that there is, yes, there's a creator, he's in charge of things, we have no power. Um, there's a powerlessness to us. And he talks about how we're, we're different from the animals in the sense that we have a sense of the past and the future. But what good does it do us if we have no control of either of those things? Uh, actually, our, our life is not that much different than an animal. Uh, We come and go with really no power. And he also talks about justice. Um, He says that where there should be righteousness, he sees wickedness. Um, And and he says, yes, it's better to be righteous, but don't don't be too righteous. Don't strain yourself, because at the end of the day, it's like playing a game of whack-a-mole. You know, you, you knock down the oppression here, it's coming up over there. You don't have enough power to actually ultimately change things or to give meaning to these things. Um, He does say that contentment with the world as it is, is a gift from God. And he does think it is good to enjoy yourself while you're here. We're here for a short time. Making yourself miserable and striving to do um, everything to the utmost is not going to really get you anywhere. So why not at least Um, Enjoy yourself before the days of trouble come, he says in chapter 12. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return with the rain. Because all must go to their eternal home and the mourners will go about in the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken and the pitcher is broken at the fountain and the wheel is broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the breath returns to God who gave it. Breath is really important because, you know, the vanity of vanities, um, the word that's actually used there is hevel, which is basically the, when you're breathing, it's the stuff you exhale. That's the, it's the, 
the waste product of breath. Um, it's the opposite of the breath of life. It's this waste of, of time. So it's mere breath, this vanity of vanities. Um, and I think when you're reading this, you could jump really quickly into like, but what about Christ? I mean, this has all been redeemed and it's all good, but don't jump there too quickly. I think it's, um, and I think what the writers who said that this book is, is here for you at this time in your life, when you've come to the end of your rope, whether it's doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing, when you realize that ultimately neither of those things will save you, to sit with that for a while. I think, you know, just having come through Holy Week, I remember the first time I was at the Maundy Thursday service here at St. George's, and I remember Jake picking up the Bible and slamming it shut and sitting there and thinking, wow, what if this was the end of the story? What if this was all there is? Because if you're looking at the world and there's, there's no word from God, there's no hope, there's no salvation from outside of ourselves, Ecclesiastes is the end of the story. That's just it. There's, no, there's not much else going on there. Um, and to sit with that and the reality of that and the truth of that is to sit in Good Friday for a while before you jump to Easter. Because getting to Easter too quickly, it's a shallow kind of joy. And so I think that really accepting the word of Ecclesiastes for what it is, which is truth, um, is really important. And Martin Luther certainly agreed with that. Ecclesiastes was also his favorite book in the Old Testament. Um, Because that's what a theologian of the cross does, is it calls a spade a spade. And it says, this is what's true. Um, I'm going to jump into Song of Songs. So Song of Songs is kind of like, after Ecclesiastes, it's like, whoa, how did I get over here? Um, Important thing about the title, Song of Songs, is that's an expression that tells us this is the song of all of the songs. This is the most of the songs. Uh, You see that expression elsewhere in the Holy of Holies. It's the holiest place. Of all of the holy places, it's the holiest. Um, And, of course, we have the negative version in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. Um, Lord of lords, we we call Jesus. So this is saying that this song, and remember, we just read a whole book of songs in the Psalms, and none of those were called the Song of Songs. This is the song. And there's two ways to look at this text, and I think you're missing something if you only read one. So the literal interpretation is that this is a love poem, and it's a pretty erotic love poem uh, about a bride and a bridegroom who are really longing for their wedding night and for the consummation of their relationship. And it's, it's an affirmation of love in the physical realm, in the physical expression. It's exuberant, it's exalting, and it is undeniably a bodily experience. You get all five senses in this poem. Um, Your eyes see the bride's black skin, the green couch that they lie down on. There's ornaments of gold. And then you smell fragrances of nard, beams of cedar, rafters of pine, myrrh, frankincense, oils, spices like saffron and cinnamon, aloes, mandrakes. They talk about the taste. They compare the taste of sweet fruit, apples, pomegranates, figs, nectar, honey, milk, Um, They long for the feel of a kiss on the mouth, an embrace, a hand gently under the head. Um, They hear the voice of the beloved, the voice of turtle doves. They announce that this is the time of singing. Um, And the body of each, the bride and bridegroom, is described from head to toe, 
from the locks of hair, their eyes, their nose, cheeks, lips, neck, breasts, arm, navel, thighs, even teeth, which are described like a flock of ewes, which is a very funny, um, I guess it's a compliment. It's like a flock of ewes or teeth next to each other. It's weird, but it's, it's cute. Um, so this is kind of letting us know that sexual desire in and of itself is obviously not a sin. Um, and that in, in the appropriate constraint of, of marriage that it's appropriate. The flesh is not evil. That this, you know, if Ecclesiastes is giving us this message that like the worldly stuff is not really going to give you satisfaction, but it's not saying that our physical presence here is, is wrong or bad or that you know, you're supposed to kind of come out of your body into this spiritual plane. Um, there's a celebration of these things, and it's in the Bible, so it's cool. Um, and so then there's, so there's that literal reading, and then there's the allegorical reading, and this is the one that the mystics really clung to and, and held on to, and they really saw it as talking about the significance of the incarnation, of Jesus coming here physically and being present here, and that we're in this space between that time and the time that's yet to come, when he'll come again, and the longing for that. And we have that metaphor of the bride and the bridegroom in many places in the New Testament. It's described as a wedding. It's described as this time when we will be together physically in the bodily resurrection, um, and, and Jake talked about in the sermon, it's a bodily resurrection that the physical body is not a bad thing that we're going to escape from, but actually something that's going to be made new. Um, so there's this sense of longing and the not yet of waiting for Christ to come that really is evident in the Song of Songs, um, if you think about it in those terms, because most of that poem is them kind of, you know, the bride being like, longing for um, to see the, br- the bridegroom, um, and she thinks that she hears his voice, and then he's gone. And so it's actually more about longing than it is about the actual like time when these things come together. Um, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. There's this really strong desire for that presence, and it's very elusive. Um, and there's a, there's a movie that I wish I could show somehow, but it's it's a French movie, and they, they haven't made a, an English translation of it. But I happened to see it at this film festival. It was called The Story of Judas. And there's a whole thing about Judas was actually fine, and it, it was misrepresented, but that's not my point. The movie, what it really focused on was this time when Jesus was physically here. And so when you first see him... His head is covered by this cloak, and so you can't quite see his face for the first, I would say, 20 minutes of the movie. And I remember sitting in the audience and almost straining in my seat, like I just wanted to, I wanted the camera to move around so I could see his face. And it was really pointing out to me that, that I actually have a desire for that, like for that physical presence. Um, and then they show, for instance, the Last Supper, they take all of the words out of it, and you just watch him, and you, it zooms in on his hands as you watch him break the bread. And after he dies, um, one of the disciples comes into the empty tomb, and there's that space that's left there, and just the wrappings are there. And he climbs into the space and pulls the wrapping around him and just starts sobbing because there's an absence there. The physical absence is, is a thing. Um, and think about what Jesus says to Mary uh, when he appears in the resurrection is, don't cling to me. 
you know, it's, I, you can't physically hold on to me right now. It's not that time for that. Um, and I'm just going to leave you with a little verse from Song of Songs. Um, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If one offered for love all the wealth of one's house, it would be utterly scorned. And I think that that's a real answer to Ecclesiastes, um, that love is stronger than death, and that's what the resurrection really means. Um, And then the other, um, I'm just going to jump back a little bit. Where is it? Sorry. Um, The other kind of answer to Ecclesiastes, um, where, you know, Koholet says there's nothing new under the sun. He's looked everywhere. There is nothing new. Everything that comes has come before. There is an answer in Isaiah. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Uh, when we talk about sitting at this, standing at this road with the fork of, you know, the way of Lady Wisdom, the way of Lady Folly, and either way, you know, we're not able to save ourselves. Isaiah answers, I will lead the blind by a road they do not know. By paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do, and I will not forsake them. So Isaiah says, God comes out, outside of ourselves and has this message for us. And next week, Ben will talk about Isaiah. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.